I know it sounds like slavery, but it was in the 60s. So I learned how to work in the fields. You pick the cotton, you drag your sack for maybe 200 yards out because you have to pick a row of cotton that goes all the way out to the end. And then you fill that sack up. And as if you're a young boy my age, you put the sack back on your shoulder, you walk back to the trailer and you weigh it and you dump it out on the trailer, then you go back out. So in the meantime, what I thought was the worst thing that ever happened to me was the best thing because what it was doing, it was molding me as a basketball player. Hey, sports lovers, get ready for a deep dive into the legendary careers and lives of sports' biggest stars with Hall of Famers, the podcast. Hosted by the pros who've guided and documented the amazing careers of these iconic athletes. More than just another interview, this is your all-access, all-season pass into what made these Hall of Fame legends great. From their humble beginnings and career highs to the breathtaking pressures they've faced, we're taking you from obscurity to the world stage of immortality. And the excitement doesn't stop there. Hall of Famers fuels the burning debate of true greatness. Who's the real GOAT? LeBron or MJ? Jim Brown or Barry Sanders? Barry Bonds or Aaron Judge? Wonder what these legends are up to now? Stick around. Our commentary explores all this and more with the most entertaining twists and turns you can't get anywhere else. This is your worldwide sports adventure. Hall of Famers is like no other podcast because it covers the all-time greats from all the major team sports. No matter what your favorite sport is, Hall of Famers has a story that will inspire you. Brace yourself for an unforgettable journey. Get ready for Hall of Famers, the podcast where legends never retire. Greetings and welcome to HOF's The Podcast, where greatness is the standard and legends never retire. I'm C. Lamont Smith, your host, and joining me today is my co-host, Mr. Robert Scoop Jackson of the Chicago Sun-Times. You could say our guest today is the godfather of today's modern NBA. He delivered the greatest single season individual performance in Denver professional basketball history. He is the youngest U.S. basketball player to win an Olympic gold medal. He is an ABA scoring champion, and he is the only player to win Rookie of the Year, All-Star MVP, and League MVP in the same year in that league. He is a two-time first-team All-NBA honoree and a two-time second-team All-NBA honoree. Our guest is an NBA champion and a member of the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. It is our pleasure to welcome Spencer Haywood to HOS the podcast. And if you don't know about Spencer Haywood, you better ask somebody or listen closely to this podcast. <laughs> Spencer, welcome to HOFs, man. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, HOF, Hall of Famer. I, I remember um, sitting on the bed in, at the hotel. I get this call from this famous reporter. And it was uh, Scoop, you know, he was welcoming me to the Hall of Fame. He did a wonderful article. And that weekend, everybody was talking about that article. And uh, Charles Barkley and Lenny Wilkins and uh, Bill Walton was like, 
man, he must really love you. <laughs> uh, that was so wonderful. That's so wonderful. Thank oh, you. Oh man, so I wasn't gonna bring it up. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I was actually gonna bring it up. I was surprised you brought it up. So I appreciate that, man. I was. It was an honor well, yeah, to be love. I have to. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was. It was blessed love. It was wonderful. Thanks. No, anytime, so, so, man. Anytime. So let, let's take you back, Spencer. We're going to go back way, way back, okay? You grew up in Silver City, Mississippi, and your parents were sharecroppers. And you, as a young boy, picked cotton. Tell our audience, one, which most of them or a lot of them may not even know, what sharecroppers yeah. are, okay? And tell, share with our audience what it was like growing up in Mississippi at that time and like I said, what a sharecropper is. Well, uh, first of all, I have to explain Silver City. It ain't no silver and it ain't no city. It's just cotton fields. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Population 310 on a good year. And uh, what we did was we picked cotton from sunup to sundown. We plant cotton during the planting season. I started picking when I was about four or five, you know, and also when I rode on the sack from my mother. Once I was born, they don't give the mothers a chance to heal or anything. They have to go back into the field because you're primarily owned by the slave master or the person who owned the field. And you have to go back because when you borrow money for Christmas or for the holidays, you end up paying it back three or four times over. And so sharecropping was not you were sharing in anything. You were just doing all the work. And the big boss sit in the wooden chair on his rocking chair on the porch with uh, smoking his... Uh, Bud sweet cigar and drinking the mint julep and saying, boy, those niggas work hard. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And I'm not to be descriptive like that, but it, it is what it is. My mom was making $2 a day most of her life, and she picked cotton and worked in the fields for all of her life. And you usually lived in a house or a shack that sat on the property in which you were working. I know it sounds like slavery, but it was in the 60s, so it was, it was slavery in the sense that it, you know, it wasn't legal, but this is their way of keeping it legal. So, yeah, and I learned how to work in the fields uh, from sunup to sundown, and I picked cotton. And the thing about picking cotton is it's a bowl of cotton. It's like a flower bowl. And it's got cotton stuck inside of it. And it's got thorns on the side of it. So your hands are bloody. Or if you wrap them with tape or whatever, you can, you can pick a little bit better. But then you, you pick the cotton. You drag your sack for maybe 200 yards out. Because you have to pick a row of cotton that goes all the way out to the end. And then you... Fill that sack up, and as if you're a young boy my age, at that time I, I would think that I was maybe 10, and you put the sack back on your shoulder, you walk back to the trailer, and you weigh it, and you dump it out on the trailer, and then you go back out. So in the meantime, what I thought was the worst thing that ever happened to me 
was the best thing because what it was doing, it was molding me as a basketball player because I had delicate hands on both sides. I was picking two rows of cotton, so I was picking from two rows, and I was dragging a sack of 100 pounds all the way to the end. Then I would pick it up and put it on my shoulder and go and come back to the trailer and dump it. So it was training me for basketball, actually. <laughs> you know, because you had hand-eye coordination, you had, you're pulling up your legs, your shoulders, everything developed as you would in a training camp of basketball. So the worst thing happened was picking that cotton and doing that field work. But the best thing that happened was God had a different plan. So that's how I became this player. And uh, I also, at the same time, when the cotton was all picked and there was no work, I worked over at the country club, which was, it was a big country club golf course that sits in the cotton field back out by our house. And so my brothers and I, we did the greens. We took care of the greens, the fairways, and all of that work that was done on the golf course. And then when it became a party time, we put on our white jackets, and then we would go in and, and serve the people of the golf course. So you learn manners. You learn how to, you know, to work in that environment. And you learn to listen and listen well because you couldn't spill drinks, you couldn't do certain things. And then I kind of fell in love with the game of golf because we took the tractor and the, and the stuff that we were working on the golf course with. And we went down to this guy, Charles Goshen, golf uh, pastor, and said, Can we like play in here? And we made ourselves two golf holes and we played golf there. We didn't have real golf clubs, we had uh, wooden sticks. I know this. It's not so primitive, but it is real. Sure, sure. So we had wooden sticks, and we played like that. And I learned to have patience because, because golf is a patient game. And so I learned a lot living in, in the South, and I learned that you could grow your own food because we had a garden. We grew our own food, and our hog, our pig, we get a piglet in the beginning of the year, grow that pig into a, into a hog, and that would feed us during the winter time. And uh, it was just a, a primitive way of life, but it was, it was a good way of life. And then when it came to Saturday and Sunday, you know, the people would go up to the juke house and play the blues and play music coming in from the fields from all around. And uh, I heard a lot of good music and a lot of good soul because on Sunday, it was, it was all about the church. Sure. And so my mom and all of the ladies in the church, I was sort of like an usher boy. Uh, so I, I worked in the church with them, and I learned an awful lot about believing because I had no other way to function other than the belief system that, you know, God is going to rescue us out of this situation. Sure. So you heard the old songs, Go Down Moses, and, and you heard all of the great songs, and then my mother would play it on the radio because we couldn't get certain music on the radio until late at night. You would get WLAC in Nashville with Big Mouth John R., and you would get Rufus Thomas in Memphis and Riley B. King, which later be was B.B. King. <laughs> so you would hear all of this music and all of this sound coming out of Memphis and, and places, and you say, oh, my God, I, 
got to get up north. So that's your whole big plan is trying to get to Chicago, to get to bro. the north. <laughs> I, I understand. So I'm trying to get to Chicago because Highway 61 yep. runs right through to Chicago. Yep. And if you get to Chicago, you made it up north. Yeah. You escaped. So I escaped at, a, at the age of 14 and a half. I got to Chicago. My brothers told me they were rich when they used to come down south and show us, you know, the brand new cars and a big fist of money. And I said, these guys are rich. So I get up to Chicago and uh, the first thing was in the, in the bus station, my brother was coming to pick me up and this guy was standing over with this bow tie on and he was saying, what you got there, boy? I said, hey man, I got some, uh, I got a ham sandwich my mother brought, you know, like, fixed for me to get up north on, and I was, I was eating that. He said, oh, you mean pork? I was like, yeah, him. <laughs> and he was a black Muslim. And then he, gave, he let me read the paper, and I was like reading that paper. I was like, man, you crazy. Black folks are in the newspaper? <laughs> right. I'm a country yeah, boy. Sure, sure. So here come my brother Joe slumbling through the uh, bus station. Hey, don't talk to them guys, man. Get away, get away. And so I was like, man, he was cool. This guy was like the righteous man. And my brother was, no, you don't even talk to him. Plus, plus, he going to take away your pork. I was like, Because all I remember, <laughs> when the hog got out in our farm, when we were living on the farm in Mississippi, he would beeline to the outhouse and eat the shit. Mm-hmm. So I was like, whoa, man. So, and then we get over to the west side on Monroe, and, and I'm thinking, boy, I'm going to be living high on the hog here. So my brother says, well, first of all, that car that I had, <laughs> it was a rental car. That was a drop. Boom. My face fell. <laughs> my face fell to the floor. <laughs> and then he's, and I'm thinking we got the whole, you know, the whole brownstone. And he was like, no, no, we just got the top floor. You're sleeping on the floor. I was like, wow, man, I could have stayed in Mississippi for this. Man. And, and speaking of Mississippi, I don't want you to leave it too quickly because I want to go okay. back to your first basketball rim and your first so-called ball. Tell our audience, yeah. you know, now, you're a Hall of Famer now, but tell our audience about your first rim and your first ball as a basketball player. Okay. Well, my first ball was a ball that my mother made out of a croaker sack, or some folks would call it a potato sack nowadays. She put a lot of stuffed clothing in it and a lot of cotton. And she said, boys, this ball will not bounce but you have to create some rules in which to play by. So that was our first ball. And then Andrew, who was like the master man of like creating stuff. So he says, well, let's make a basket out of this barrel rim. So he put the barrel rim and on Andrew the is your brother? And we, Andrew's your brother? Yeah, my um, brother, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so he set up the rules and everything. So we were... He had this barrel rim. You put it on the backboard, anything, it would fall in. It was just like you couldn't miss <laughs> because the barrel rim was that big. You know, it's a huge brim. So we couldn't miss. And then we had, like, these rules where you said, 
all right, I got two bops, one bop, two bops. I make the layup or the shot, or you make the pass. Except on the Andrews rule, he had three. So he was cheating, but that's his game. Right, right, right. <laughs> that was his game style. And so that's how we started playing. And then later on, we lived on the junkyard, so on the dumpyard. So what happened was the white kids threw away their basket rim. We got that rim. It was like, oh, my God, we got a real rim. So we don't have a ball yet. But then later on, they threw away that ball. It was a vault, V-O-L-T or something like that. And we put a patch on that ball. Oh, God, that thing was heaven. It was bouncing. It had feel to it and we had a rim that we could put it up there and you could you know we were like missing but we finally got it got adjusted to the to the small rim because <laughs> this was a small rim compared to a big rim so and the game was on we played all throughout the night because we had you know we played by the moonlight it was the it was in our yard the basket was set up in the yard to keep us from going out into and getting in trouble. So our mother allowed us to do that, stuck on a telephone pole, and we just kept balling, man. Right. It's a beautiful game, beautiful game. That's when I first fell in love with basketball. I was like, wow, there's nothing like basketball. Absolutely. So, so you leave Chicago yeah. and you end up in Detroit. Tell us about that journey and how you got there. Well, what happened was my brother Leroy was playing, he had went up north because you know, when you have a lot of kids, and there was 10 of us in Mississippi, so my, my brothers and sisters. So he, he was taken up north to help my aunt with work and everything else around her home and in her home. And so he stayed with her. He went to high school there in Detroit, was an all-state basketball player, and then he uh, was signed with Bowling Green State University. And he was a great player there at that university. He came over to Chicago to visit the family on the holiday, 4th of July type stuff. And my brothers was in there. They had these jelly-looking suits on and these white fake Stacy shoes, Stacy Adams shoes on. <laughs> this classic look. <laughs> so they had a half a pint in the back pocket. And they were talking a lot of talk. Man, your little brother can beat your ass. You know, he can he can take you up, man. This boy can play. And I, I had grew to about six six at the time. So my brother Roy said, "Let's go over here." So we went over and we was playing at on um, Western Avenue at the end of in the Monroe in Western. Mm -hmm. So we were playing basketball. We played like four games and. He said, you're not going to survive over here. I, I'm going to take you back to college with me. We'll figure it out on the run. And that's when he said, pack up your bags and let's get ready to roll. And I had a paper bag, a thin file paper bag. I had a pair of shoes, not a pair of shoes. I had my Converse that I had on with a hole in the bottom. I had my, my cardboard in the floor of the shoe so I wouldn't be just touching the ground. And I had a, uh, a pair of khaki pants and a, um, you know, like a, it would be a flannel shirt. And so I was packed and ready to go. Let's go. 
because I wanted to get away from these guys because all they they did every weekend from Friday to to Monday, they just drank. And it was just a big giant party, you know? And so I left and went to Bowling Green State University and there was Nate Thurman, Howard Comise, all of those great NBA players later, but they were there training and getting ready to play. And, and here I was, this young kid, and, and they threw me into the game. And I'm playing against these guys. And I was like, wow, man, I'm in a gym. Everything is beautiful in the, on campus and stuff like that. I was like, right away, my mental state changed. Well, I'm a college guy now. <laughs> because my goal was before was just to get through high school, get a job, and go on my way. But now I have a, another better look. So my brother said, well, we got to get you over to Detroit. And hopefully this guy named Will Robinson, who ended up being the first black coach in Division One history, said, I hope he would get you for high school. And if he can get you in high school at Persian High School, which is a great school, you have, you've struck gold. So, but you got to perform really strong in this tournament they have going on at Crunk. Crunk was not just a boxing place, but it was a, also an outdoor courts, basketball court and baseball and tennis and so on. So I went out and played. I played against the high school guys, George Trapp and all of the other fine players in the city of Detroit. And I had like 27 points and 15 rebounds and everybody come from running over and like, who is this guy? What is he doing? Who? How old is he? What was going on? I was like, hey, I don't know. I got some new gym shoes on, man. I got some <laughs> shoes from the back. I got me some cons. My shoes are not. I'm not putting cardboard in the in the bottom of the shoe. Shoot, I'm living large. I got a fago pop. <laughs> Dog on it, man. You you're talking about living. And so then Dave Bing walked over to me and said, you know, he was with the Detroit Pistons. He says, well, why don't you, to, to my brother Roy and to me, he said, why don't you let him play against the guys from the University of Michigan and, and also Michigan State? So they were there, Kathy Russell, Bill Buttons, Oliver Darden. Oh, man, it was some players. I was like, oh, man, I'm playing against college boys. So I played against them, and I had 15 points and seven rebounds. And they said, wait a minute, is this guy this young? and can play this well, let's let him play against the pros. And so Dave put me on his, on his team, Dave Bing, so I played against the pros, and I had 10 points, and I think it was six rebounds. And, and Will Robinson was over there licking his chops like, oh, my God, he played three games. And I was like, is there any other games I got to play? <laughs> because I'm used to working from sun up to sun down, so three games was like, yeah, you know. It was fun, but what else I got to do? And he said, look, I'm going to get you over to Persian High School. And that's how the whole experiment started at Persian High School in Detroit, where the city of Detroit, we hadn't won a Class A state champion in 35 years because of racism and other things that would take place when you get outside of the city. The referees would change up everything. And so Will Robinson started talking that first season over there. 
I got a horse. We're going to ride him all the way to the Class A state champions. And so the city kind of like was like, oh, man, the country boy can't take your nobody to no city, to the state champion. Curtis Jones and those boys at Northwestern beat us for this city. Hello. That's, that, <laughs> they beat us That's what I wanted to talk to you about. I wanted you to, but you can go on because I was like, people don't know, man. Like, you all won the state championship, but you lost the city championship to Curtis Jones. I mean, just yeah. for the sake Curtis of Curtis Jones, John Mayberry, Tony Coleman. Yeah, yeah. Just on the record, because we're talking about greatness. Speak about how great Curtis Jones is, because Detroit is one of the greatest basketball cities in the history we have in America. And if you talk to almost mm. anybody from there, you, Gerb, Jalen, Chris, Dave, everybody who comes from there, they'll tell you Curtis Jones is the greatest basketball player out of Detroit. So could you just speak on how great well, Curtis Jones the was? Second grade. Huh? He's the second oh, grade, so I'm the real. Oh, okay. No, <laughs> <laughs> nah, you know, like, <laughs> we're not supposed to, you know, like, give another right, man. Right, right, right. <laughs> but Curtis Jones were, if you're looking at today's players, if you look at a player in the NBA, he had the same handle as Kyrie Irving. Mm-hmm. He didn't shoot as well, but he had to handle, he had the playmaking ability. He would take a team like Northwestern who had baseball players. John Mayberry was a baseball player with the Kansas City Royals. Uh, you know, he had football players on the team, but they beat us because of his pass and his skill set and how he were just as a player. This guy was a miracle. He was something special. And to see him play and watch him play and to play against him for the two years, it was just incredible. And I was so hurt when he left and went to junior college and they put some LSD into his drink and that screwed him up for life. But he was going to come back and join me at the University of Detroit. Mm-hmm. He, George Gervin, we were going to be the powerhouse in the Midwest. You know, it blew up because they reneged on Will Robinson deal as the coach. But back to the high school, we finally got to the Class A state championship and Pontiac Central had made it through and we played against them. The first player of the game, Ralph Simpson was on my team. He played with Denver and the father of India Ari. So he was on that team. He played with us in the Rockets, but Ralph... I tipped the ball to Ralph, and Ralph kicked the ball to me, and I just took off because all of a sudden we are playing at Michigan State. The floor has a, a podium, you know, it's like a platform. It's, it's got bounce. <laughs> so I didn't know what to do with it. I just took off, and I dumped, and the referee said, hold it, damn it, hold it, hold it. We're going to jump this son of a gun over again. And I did the same thing, and then the game was on, and the boys from Pontiac Central, they were looking at us like, this big grown team? (laughs) 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 Because our guards were, (laughs) scoop our guards were Granville Cooks, six foot three, Ralph Simpson, six five, 225. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Forwards were John Lockhart, six seven. And the other four was Jim Connolly, 6'8", and I was playing center at 6'8". So we were some big dudes, you know. And Will Robinson would always start 
because he had been cheated before, he would always start this white guy named Eric Witzke. He would start Eric Witzke for two minutes every game when we got up north and going into the state because we wanted to get the referees to show that it wasn't a black school. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, our school was 60-40 right. uh, white, but we were like, we wanted to show the teams that we wasn't mm. black. We was, we had 11 at <laughs> <laughs> the 12th man. <laughs> so it was one of the beautiful tournaments and a beautiful time, and we won it all, and... Um, all I wanted to do was to get back to Eight Mile and Ryan. Our school was on Seven Mile and Ryan, so Eight Mile and Ryan. You hear a lot about it in, in uh, Eminem songs, but Eight Mile and Ryan's had a top hat. And it was like a top hat was a burger joint where we came and sit out and just ate burgers with the whole class. And people came from Michigan State back to Detroit. We partied like a madhouse, and it was great. No alcohol, no smoke, nothing, just milk. Milk and burgers. <laughs> and, and burgers. <laughs> that flashback there gave me a lot of uh, a lot of good feeling. Thank you for letting me no share. Sure. Yeah. After your high school days, you end up out in Colorado, you know, where, where I'm at, at Trinidad Junior College. You, your journey has just been amazing. Mississippi, Chicago to Detroit. Then you come to Trinidad Junior College. Out of all places in the world, how do you get to Trinidad Junior College? Okay, how I got to Trinidad State Junior College was my mom was still in Silver City. Most of my family was in Silver City, and they had never seen me play in high school. So they just had newspaper clippings and, you know, some, some news clips. So I decided... Well, to help them see me play, I wanted my, you know, one leg was up north and one leg was up down south. So I signed with the University of Tennessee, the first black <laughs> superstar down there. And so as I had was there for the summer, getting ready, prepared for the year, I didn't realize that they only had one black that ever had signed in the Southeastern Conference. And I was the first superstar to sign there. And Adolph Rupp from Kentucky had just lost to Texas Western or five blacks the year before. And so he was lobbying, saying, Tennessee can't have me because he should have me because he he's the leader in this conference. And so it was this squabble going back and forth between Ray Mears, who, who was the head of the Tennessee University of Tennessee coaching and Adolph Rupp. So Will Robinson came in and said, that's just a pissing contest and you didn't belong down here anyway. I got a great place for you to go. I had Mel Daniels went to New Mexico. We have Bob King down at the University of New Mexico. Ira Hodge was there at New Mexico, I think as well. And he had played for Will at Castec and Mel Daniels had played for a will at Persian, so he wanted me to follow those two guys. And so I get him, he said, so you're going to be close to Denver and close to Albuquerque. I didn't know. So I get there, we're 360 miles from everywhere. We're just in this little place. 
And Lord knows, man, and they had recruited a lot of great ball players because back then the major universities would take maybe one player, one black athlete, and most didn't take any because they had just lost to Texas Western. It was a new thing in 67, 67, 66, they won the championship Texas Western with an all black team. And so in, in 67, this whole thing was like, wait a minute, we got to integrate, we got to do things. So it was uh, interesting. So here we are, all of us at this Trinidad State Junior College, and we just start playing. We go over to Sterling, Colorado. We got Cliff Mealy. We got Johnny Johnson. We got a lot of NBA, former NBA players playing in the other, other teams in junior college. So we just played and played, and they voted me that year the – MVP of the junior college, you know, because I, I think I was averaging 27 and 27. <laughs> and so, so the Olympics come up in 1968. So Jerry Tarkanian, who was the junior college coach, he said, well, I'm going to bring my team down to Albuquerque to try out because we had the NIA, we had the armed forces teams. We had, at that time, for young people who was going to be watching this and listening to it, they had AAU was like Akron Goodyear. It was not like AAU as we know. It was like a semi-professional team. And so they had that team. So he was lobbying, I need to bring my team down here. And he was at, I think it was Riverside Junior College or something like that in California. So he had this team, this super team. So we go into Albuquerque, and everybody was saying, but we're not going to allow no freshmen to play on this Olympic team. So, And I was a freshman. I was like, well, can I just stay in, get me some gear, go back to Detroit, show my boys, hey, man, I tried out with the Olympic team. Look at this gear. It's real. <laughs> <laughs> and so... I went out there and started dominating Tombo, Winkle, and all of them. And then they told Jerry, well, Jerry, make sure that boy don't get hurt. Hank Iber and John McLendon, who was a disciple of Naismith from Kansas, first black. So he was the assistant coach. So they were like, don't let him get hurt. We got an out. We got an out for him. And so finally, we get down to the finals and we playing the, the, you know, they brought us all into the room and we was cutting the team. First, he was like, Hank, I was well, well, Pete, we can't use you this year. It was Pete Maverick. I was like, 44 points a game? What are you talking about? Then the next one was Calvin Murphy. He got cut. I was like, wow, what the hell is going on? And then the next guy was Rick Mount. He was over at uh, Purdue. Purdue. He was averaging 39 a game. I was like, whoa. And then they cut Tom Bowinkle, who was the big guy on campus at that time. And then they said, well, I think our first pick is going to be Spencer Haywood. And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't because I made the team. It was like because he had been talking about this dumb passport and your birth certificate. And I was like, oh man, what am I gonna do for a birth certificate? Because my mother signed an affidavit when I went, came up to Detroit 
in order to get a passport, I got to have an official birth certificate to go to Russia, Yugoslavia, and into Finland and back to New York for exhibition season for the Olympic team. And they call up my mother. She says, I got his birth certificate right here. Shoot. I don't know why you people bugging me about this birth certificate. I got it right here in my Bible written on the John 21. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was born by a midwife. I'm going back to Mississippi. I was born by this midwife. So she just wrote it in the in the Bible, you know. <laughs> so they had to go down to the Jackson Daily News. They came down with the reporters and everything. My mother was like, you can't come in my house and use my Bible without eating my food. So they had to eat food and do everything. They took pictures of the Bible and and they went to Jackson and they made the vital statistics because now I'm a Mississippi boy again because the Mississippi people were like, we got a kid in the Olympics. Right, right, right. <laughs> right, right. Special, you special So they were doing everything to make sure yeah. that this, yeah, it was making sure that this thing has got to work. So we got the birth certificate. And I get back to Alamosa. I mean, we go up to Alamosa for the practice. And so they start calling out the name of the birth certificates. And, and they said, all right, who the hell is Spencey? She didn't spell my name correctly in the Bible. <laughs> so they gave me the birth certificate. It was Spencer, so I had to change the name again to Spencer. <laughs> but I was like, oh boy, I'm on my way. I got a passport, man. That thing looked, that blue passport looked like it was gold. Right. <laughs> because, I mean, you know, country boy in Mississippi, you couldn't go to bathrooms, you couldn't go to this, you couldn't drink out of the water fountains. It was like, you know, this was a big deal. And so we off to Russia, man. We get into Russia, and the Russians was like cheating, and everything was crazy in the basketball room, on the basketball court. When we get back to the hotel, we all eating together. And we're eating this meat, and Mike Silliman, who was from the Armed Forces, and Jojo White, who had played, who had did some Armed Forces service as well, he was like, this is not a filet mignon. This is horse. And I was like, yeah, give me some more gravy. (laughs) (laughs) Charlie Scott, look, he's just, he's a black guy, you know, he's black, dark. (laughs) And he was with, you know, Dave Smith in North Carolina and from New York. So he hadn't seen no horses. He just like, oh my God, I think I'm going to die. So he called up Dean and we had to bring, take him out of Russia. (laughs) Before he... (laughs) Before he left Russia, I would trade him my ice cream for his steak. And Charlie was a skinny guy, so he lost about 10 more pounds, and he was a stick walking around like, ah, I didn't eat no horse. And we were like, yeah, but look at you. You need to stand up. <laughs> so they, they, ran, they sent him back home and said, we'll meet you in New York. And uh, we had a great time playing in Russia, Yugoslavia and into Finland, and then we came back and we played we scrimmage the Knicks. And again, I was finding my way, and Howard Cosell kept hounding me when I got to New York, and we was getting ready to go into the locker room and coming back out. You're going to save America? What, what the hell is Hank Arbor doing here? And I was, 
You don't know. Shit, I'm turning 19. I haven't turned 19 yet, boss. Hey, I turned 19, but I was like, come on, let me just play. And Willis Reed said, leave him alone, Howard. Come on, let the kid play. Let's see what he got. And then we went out and played against the Knicks in the scrimmage. And, you know, they wasn't in shape, but I kicked Willis' ass. And that's the only thing I remember <laughs> was like, I got Willis Reed. Oh, my God. I must be a bad mother. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next stop we went on the exhibition tour was to Cincinnati. Oscar. And so at that time, I'm blowing up with oats. I'm feeling my oats. And I'm playing against the big O. Yep. Right. Whoa. And the big O was using Charlie. He was like, Charlie was, I'm going to in the locker room. Coach, let me guard him. Okay, go ahead. Guard him, Charlie. You got him, man. So Charlie was going, big old, big old, we're walking down to like two feet. And we kept saying, put JoJo on him, JoJo. Like, I'm a little, a little smaller now. So he busted, he busted us up really good. And after the game, the old said, come on upstairs. Let me tell you all about what you're going to be looking forward to in the Olympics. And because he was there in, I think, in 60 or 64. He and Jerry West and those guys. And that's when we got the, the word from the, the mighty big O that we could win the Olympics because we were an underdog at that time. And so we get into Mexico City. They were sweeping up blood because we had had the riots uh, in Mexico and they had shot seven people. And, and so it was just chaos. And then you had Harriet was like, what are y'all doing? You ain't doing nothing but picking cotton for the man. And I was like, how did you know me that well? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, guys, you got to remember, I'm naive, you know? So so we get on campus, and then these guys walked in with those caps on and shit. We were like, who are these guys? And Charlotte's got, man, that's my homeboy. It's John Carlos. Harlem, baby. Ain't no country stuff here. And I was like, okay. And where's the other guy from? I think he's from Texas or someplace. I mean, they don't count. It was talking about Tommy. And then you had uh, all the other track and field guys. They were like the dominant force on campus. So here come Big George, George Foreman. Doom, 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 doom. And me and him, eye contact, we were like, food. <laughs> <laughs> the commissary. <laughs> So I found somebody that could eat as much as I could eat and was young as I am. So we start hanging out and going to the commissary and eating. And everybody would always say, you're looking for George or Spencer, go to the commissary with him and the Russians and the Africans. They all eating all day long. Let's talk about that dichotomy, though, because you had Tommy Smith and John Carlos who engaged in that iconic protest that you know, everybody that's a, a student of history mm-hmm. knows about. And then in that same Olympics, you had Big George walk into the ring with the American flag, okay? And, you know, he's, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's the contrast. And here you are, 19 years old, the star of the Olympic basketball team. How did that impact you? And did you get pulled in any sort of way by being kind of there with those two contrasts? Well, I got pulled a bit because, you know, I was just there and all of a sudden I'm getting all this attention. Howard and all of the media was like, what you going to do? What you going to do? And I was like, 
man, I'm getting food. I'm playing basketball. I want to win the gold medal. That's all I have in my mind. And so we had, because there was some uprising a little bit on in the community, in our community, which is called the Commerce, you know, like uh, where all of the, the players and the women and the athletes stay at our village. And so they brought in Jesse Owens, Wilma Rudolph, Willie White, who had ran the previous Olympics. She was in this Olympic, and each one was speaking. And then when Jesse got up, and we were like, oh, man, Jesse Owens, whoa, whoa, whoa. So he was talking to us about what it was like and what is it going to be like when we leave the Olympics. He said, you're going to have opportunities that you'll never have. Just play your cards right. And he was speaking primarily to John and Tommy and the track and field guys because we were like just fascinated that he was there, you know. And so John Carlos said, sir, sir. How did they treat you when you got back? And we were like, John, you don't say that to Jesse. <laughs> and Jesse, I mean, it hit a nerve because they treated him bad when he came back. You know, after winning all of that stuff. So it hit a nerve. And he said, hey, what would you have done if you had to run in the front of Hitler? We were like, oh boy, this is going to be one here. So John calmed down and Tommy got a little word or two in and then it, the system calmed down a bit. But man, it was just, it was just a, a heavy thing to see that man who had been hurt. And then we asked him the question. <laughs> Which is John, John was our spokesperson, John Carlos. So we were like, hey, let, let the New York guy do it. And and so we all laced up and said, let's go do this. And then when we got to our finals, we had a day off. And then the track and field was in their finals. So we all ran over the stadium because you have to support your team whenever they are participating. And so we were like, yeah, man, our boy's going to take one and two. Who's going to be number one? And so when they finished, they get up on the podium with the glove on. We was like, whoa. Uh -huh. This is going to be trouble. <laughs> and I'm from Mississippi. I know that kind of trouble. I was like, whoo, Lordy. And Avery Brundage, who were with Jesse when he was trying to protest Jesse playing, uh, uh, running in the games against the Germans in Hitler's time. Avery Brundage was the head of the, <laughs> the Olympics. But he was a Nazi. So, so he threw them out and said, look, you get out of this, get off the grounds in which the Olympics sat on and let, let, let's go, get out of here. And, and then if you all get a pro got a problem with it, we're taking your passport. So George said, man, I'm gonna have me a flag in my hand. I'm, I wanna get out of here, I wanna get back to Texas. <laughs> and you better do something too, Spencer, you up to, I was like, man, what can I do? I'm just playing. And I got a whole bunch of teammates. You don't have nobody. Yeah. <laughs> just jokingly. <laughs> and George, when he got his team, won that fight, he had that flag walking around. He was like, I said, big George, he pulled it off. And then when I got on the podium, we won the, the gold and I was standing there and they had putting this gold medal on my neck. And I was thinking, 
Four years before, I was a slave in Mississippi. And now they chanting my name, Tutta Grande, hey, Spencer Hayward, the greatest, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wow, how did I get so far this fast in America? Yeah. <laughs> That's how yeah. it happened. Yeah. Welcome to America. That's a wrap for today's deep dive into the sports world. Next time, we'll be back with even more stories of triumph, irresistible debates, and, as always, a high-level look into the lives of eternal legends. Give Hall of Famers a like and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Want to keep the convo going? Join in the debates and stay in the know with all things Hall of Famers on social media for exclusive behind-the-scenes content and a chance to link up with fellow sports buffs and our crew. Until next time, keep reaching for the stars.